Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Now for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little different for you. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the sixth of these special episodes now. This one features Dr Yasir Javed and Dr Rob Hampton discussing heart valve disease. So, hello, my name is Rob Hampton. I'm a portfolio GP practising in the Leicestershire area. And I'm joined today by Yasir Javed, who is a GP working as a cardiovascular and diabetes lead for Northamptonshire CCG and was Pulse GP of the Year in 2015 for his work in reducing stroke and emergency admissions. So welcome to our podcast, which comes to you as part of the Chronic Conditions Month 2022, which is taking place throughout May. This includes a whole string of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions across a range of therapeutic areas. Today in this podcast, we're going to be discussing heart valve disease in adults, an update from NICE. So, you see, what can GPs and primary care teams learn from these guidelines to improve our care in this area? Well, firstly, thank you very much for that introduction, uh, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. So, look, um, valve disease, are, I often think, is a sort of neglected chronic condition found incidentally often through investigation of other conditions for instance, echocardiography of a patient with suspected heart failure. However, with the ageing uh, of the population, the prevalence of valve disease is likely to really explode over the coming decades. Uh, so just to give you a perspective, incidence starts to increase sharply beyond the age of 65. And by the, if you look at the over 75 population, we're looking at about 13% of patients have at least moderate, which is quite significant, aortic or mitral valve disease. The two most commonly affected valves. Um, so yeah, I think the NICE guidelines are a very welcome publication to help address uh, what really is a significant unmet need that exists in, in this particular area of cardiology. It's important that we do diagnose valve disease in a timely fashion, you know, because modern valve intervention actually offers an excellent uh, prognosis, despite the often elderly demographic. But prognosis does fall very, very sharply if there is any significant delay 
in diagnosis and referral. And so sadly, there does remain a huge detection gap, which I think is probably worsened significantly through the pandemic. And many patients <coughs> are being diagnosed late and present uh, actually with significant heart failure, uh, hugely compromising prognosis. And um, so probably for, for this podcast, we should focus on what I think, um, well, what are the two most common and clinically significant valve lesions in this country uh, would be aortic stenosis and mitral uh, regurgitation. Okay, so well, thanks for that excellent introduction. So just to uh, give, give me an idea, what sort of things should we be looking for? You said there's an unmet need, it's underdiagnosed. As we are beginning to see more people, what are the things that should may alert us to aortic stenosis or mitral regurgitation that would trigger us to listen to the heart and then think about intervention? Well, I think the incidental finding of a murmur um, is an important trigger. So, But obviously that's dependent on us auscultating uh, patients uh, that um, are likely to have valve disease. Uh, and certainly the NICE guidelines make it clear that we should uh, certainly uh, consider an echocardiogram in all patients found to have a murmur, particularly in those over 75. That's the age category where a murmur is more likely to represent um, a valve uh, lesion. Uh, and, and we should also include anybody with a family history of valve disease, particularly mitral regurgitation. Uh, and we should also be uh, listening for valve disease in patients with atrial fibrillation. Uh, if there are any associated symptoms or signs in addition to that murmur, for instance, breathlessness, um, new onset angina is, is quite a common uh, associated symptom, uh, peripheral edema, anyone with uh, uh, sort of ECG changes, then really an echo is not should not just be considered. Uh, you should be offering an echo uh, to these patients because the NICE guidelines make it actually very clear that if you've got significant symptoms like uh, breathlessness on minimal, minimal exertion or worse still, syncope, exertional syncope, an echo should be undertaken uh, within two weeks uh, with a specialist assessment. Okay, so exertional syncope, that's one we probably don't really ask about, and that's probably a very specific thing to ask about in an older population, isn't it? Um, and just as a reflection, I think there were two cases in my practice where um, people who thought their asthma was getting worse or COPD was getting worse managed more and more inhalers. In fact, the, the cause was cardiac. So there's some, you know, if they're not coughing, the, the message I took away, if somebody's not coughing or wheezing and they're short of breath, think hard. Would you agree that's a good and start? I would totally agree with that. And also we've got to be mindful that many patients in this sort of age group tend to sort of adapt their lifestyle to suit their sort of worsening uh, underlying valve disease. So a patient may not actually be that forthcoming about their sort of worsening breathlessness. But I think asking, you know, specific questions in terms of, you know, effort tolerance. For me, effort tolerance is, is, is the big early sign of uh, possible valve disease you know ask patients what are you doing now compared to uh, maybe six months ago you know what makes you breathless um, if you're a keen gardener I, I, I'll ask them you know how much how much uh, how long can you mow the grass for before you need to take a break compare that to six months ago maybe ask the husband the wife the kids you know get a picture of uh, of what uh, what their current effort tolerance is compared to what it used to be i think that's a good way of unmasking the patient who's adapted their lifestyle to suit their symptoms right okay so effort tolerance effort syncope really important markers uh, in a history to, to, to think heart really 
Okay. Um, and, you know, the one, thing is that one of the things I took out of these guidelines were that actually there are some scenarios where an adult might have a murmur that you shouldn't be thinking of an echocardiogram. Now, I have to say I feel rather nervous about that. I'm not sure there's any circumstance where I wouldn't request an echocardiogram if I could hear a murmur in, in an adult. Yeah, I think, um, you know, thankfully the, the majority of murmurs are innocent, but it is, unless you're very, very experienced, it's quite hard to differentiate an innocent murmur and actually often impossible um the first thing i'll say all innocent murmurs are going to be systolic murmurs because there there'd be a murmur due to just a bit of vigorous flow in the heart as it contracts so if you hear any diastolic murmurs that is definitely pathological but systolic murmurs are quite common uh, t during teenage years young adults where the hearts just the way the hemodynamics are that you know that you can get a bit of turbulent flow in the heart uh, and obviously in pregnancy um so yeah i think you should have a low threshold for doing an echo because as i said it's hard to say for sure uh, but if you're you know if you, if you if there's a long waiting list for an echo there's no harm in sort of reviewing that patient in a couple of months and seeing if that murmur is still there but i think anyone with a persistent murmur should be referred uh, for for an echocardiogram in primary care okay and i remember you, um the guidelines uh, have the advice that if somebody has the symptoms you've described and um, you can hear a murmur and they're in the age cohort you described, a two-week wait is, a, is, a, is, is really appropriate. Is your understanding that that's a fairly universally accepted thing within the cardiology world, that GPs can get the two-week wait? Um, <laughs> I think it's variable, but um, I think cardiologists know it's important to see these patients urgently. Whether they've got the capacity universally around the country to to um you know to meet that uh, is a different matter but the reason there's a very good reason why there's a two-week wait it's it's mainly for patients who've got um critical uh disease particularly critical aortic stenosis because um we know that if these patients are not managed uh, assessed and offered a valve intervention in a timely fashion you've missed that window where their heart can recover there's actually a small narrow window of around six months after someone's become symptomatic from significant aortic stenosis where you can actually um, recover the heart uh, if, if we delay the diagnosis or delay the assessment and intervention then i'm afraid uh, patients have a much worse prognosis whereas i consider a timely referral for aortic stenosis as uh, one of the few opportunities where you can actually cure someone of their impending heart failure which we all know is a terrible disease. Absolutely. And a, a huge cause of morbidity and you know, just frailty getting worse in that, in that age group. So, okay. And you mentioned now the interventions are um, you know, far less uh, aggressive than perhaps they used to be. Can you just give us an idea of what sort of interventions there would be for aortic mitral valve disease now? So for mitral uh, regurgitation, we very rarely see mitral stenosis because realistically that's only uh, due to rheumatic heart disease. So we, we occasionally see it from patients uh, perhaps who've, who are born in sort of sub-Saharan Africa or some of the subcontinental countries. But um, for mitral regurgitation, which is usually a degenerative uh, condition, most patients un would undergo uh, mitral valve repair. Uh, which is quite successful um, if that's not uh, practical uh, depending on the sort of valve morphology then then surgery with mitral valve replacement 
uh, is an option. So that that is open heart surgery. But really where the great innovation has been is in aortic valve replacement. Increasingly now, particularly in older patients who are sort of frailer and sort of higher risk for surgery, transcatheter aortic valve intervention is now a very very viable alternative and is almost considered as the default option for patients at high risk for surgery um so this is where um previously surgery would have been considered first line so this is an intervention where a the aortic valve is actually uh, uh the, the the replacement aortic valve is introduced via the sort of femoral artery in the groin and sort of uh positioned uh, into place via a catheter and then deployed opened up on top of the old valve uh, and it's an, a remarkable procedure i would argue one of the great innovations in medicine over the last uh, 20 30 years i mean if when i was at medical school if someone had told me they'd be routinely replacing aortic valves without cutting open the chest uh, in a 40 minute procedure where patients walk home typically uh you know on day two day three that was that would have been in the realms of science fiction sort of 20 30 years ago but it's now almost routine uh, clinical practice right and given the morbidity you describe even more reason to you know to really identify and, and refer okay and so we've seen somebody we can hear a systolic murmur let's just say we can't really work out what it is um but there's a exertional dyspnea maybe syncope so we've referred what do we do while we're waiting for the referral if anything well, we can't do anything, unfortunately. Uh, there's no medical treatment uh, for valve disease. It's either surgery or nothing. I mean, if they've got signs of heart failure, uh, a diuretic can sort of offload and help relieve symptoms. I guess and the advice is, particularly if you think it's significant aortic stenosis, you know, these patients mustn't uh, sort of significantly exert themselves uh, because the you know the left ventricle can simply not able to increase its cardiac output in, re in response to exercise and avoid using ACE inhibitors in patients with significant uh, aortic stenosis because that can significantly reduce the sort of afterload on the heart which can lead to dramatic hypotension. Right so that's a really good piece of advice. ACE inhibitors, same with ARBs? Yes, uh, ACE inhibitors or ARBs really shouldn't be used in significant aortic stenosis but I, I, the take-home message is uh, once they're symptomatic, they need to be uh, sort of assessed uh, for uh, intervention in a very timely fashion. I'd be writing a, uh, an urgent referral to a cardiologist for that. Aspirin? Aspirin wouldn't make much difference if, if there was no underlying uh, coronary artery disease. Yeah, okay. And on the subject of um, blood thinners, um, warfarin and DOAX, the... With the, the use of DOAX has just accelerated to virtually everything except when valve disease is uh, in place. Well, that's the advice we have. And I, I, I'm actually still not quite certain why that is and what the future might hold. Well, this is very confusing terminology. The cardiologists, in their wisdom, came up with this terminology, valvular AF. And you're absolutely right. The DOACs are not licensed for valvular AF, but in the context of atrial fibrillation, valvular AF is really just reserved for patients who've got a mechanical heart valve, so a prosthetic mechanical heart valve, or significant rheumatic mitral stenosis. So all other valve disease does not, uh, should not be classified as valvular AF. So that includes aortic stenosis, 
mitral regurgitation, a biological aortic valve. Uh, and by the way, all TAVIs uh, are deployed using a, a biological um, aortic valve. So it's very confusing terminology. So essentially, unless you've got a mechanical heart valve or mitral stenosis, which is as rare as hen's teeth, a DOAC can be used in all other valve patients. Right, okay. And can you see the license conditions changing over time? Um, not for mechanical heart valves. I think we've got fairly definitive evidence that uh, the DOACs just simply don't work as well as warfarin. There was a trial using dabigatran, and, and that's probably because once you've got a bit of metal in contact with blood, there are different anticoagulation mechanisms required, uh, and it's likely the DOACs just don't perform as well as warfarin. For mitral stenosis, um, that's Hope, we're hopeful that in time we'll get a license for using the DOAX. The main reason we don't have a license is because these were patients, A, that were very rare and B, excluded uh, from the clinical trials. But as I said, it's not really a major issue for us in primary care because you shouldn't have that many patients at all uh, with mitral stenosis. Okay. So warfarin is here to stay for a subset of people. For the, for the metallic valve patients. And also, you can't uh, use a DOAC, uh, certainly they're not licensed, once in patients with severe renal dysfunction. So once the creatinine clearance is below 15 uh, and you need to anticoagulate someone, uh, the only oral anticoagulant licensed is warfarin. So thinking about um, somebody who's now uh, you know, had the intervention, how would we in, pra in, gen uh, in general practice follow things up? Um, yeah, I mean, well, every everyone who's had an intervention should now be under uh, surveillance, and that's generally secondary care surveillance. It's often now cardiac physiologist-led surveillance. Uh, the type and frequency really is dependent on multiple factors, uh, including the type of valve, whether it's prosthetic, mechanical, and that should be, you know, that's out of our sort of area of expertise in primary care. That will be determined by the specialist valve team. But I guess patients do get lost to follow up. So if you see a patient who hasn't had a review of their heart valve, particularly if they've had their valve in for more than five years, especially for a, a biological valve, uh, which is not as robust as a mechanical valve, it's well worth plugging them back into uh, the sort of cardi cardiology follow-up service. I, I guess the other important point is what do how do you follow up patients who haven't had an intervention yet? Um, uh, and again, these are patients that, again, should be under surveillance by secondary care. If someone's got mild valve disease and they're otherwise asymptomatic, they, the guidelines do not recommend routine follow-up uh, of these patients because it's unlikely, or in the majority of cases, mild valve disease does not progress. Um, personally, I would just maybe put a, a reminder in the notes to maybe repeat that echo three, or five, five, three to five years later just to check uh, it hasn't progressed um, to a more moderate uh, severity. But patients with moderate or severe valve disease, they should really be under at least annual uh, surveillance uh, with echocardiography. Okay. And I know from your previous presentations, you are uh, somebody who's at the forefront of technology in uh, medicine. Are there any sort of new gadgets that maybe um, you know, people could uh, self listen to their heart sounds and, and i guess also we'll be seeing now a number of um stethoscopes that will give you sound uh, augmented sound and tracing and all that sort of thing well, what are your thoughts there 
I think they can be incredibly useful. There are some, uh, I'm sort of trialling one at the moment, uh, an electronic uh, stethoscope that actually has interpretive software within it. I'm not convinced as to its uh, you know, complete robust uh, accuracy, but the beauty is you can actually save the recording as a sort of uh, sound file and I guess there's no harm in sending that across to your local friendly cardiologist as a bit of advice and guidance. But no, they're, they're, I think technology is moving on. There are now also very portable echo machines. Now, I don't advise you know, a, a, a clinician in primary care to invest in a portable echo machine. But, but these are machines where perhaps within a PCN, there could be someone skilled to uh, to sort of use them uh, to to sort of do mass screening of of patients uh, over the age of seventy five and they're very very good quality they're like the size of a smartphone um, and and uh, obviously connect that to a probe so yeah technology is moving very quickly I remember it wasn't that long ago where echo machines had to take well, the size of a small cupboard, uh, but now they're ultra-portable. And it's analogous, isn't it, to ab- um, ab- abdominal aortic aneurysm screening. It's something for that group. It can save lives. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, early intervention is key. So, um, on that theme, I think that's been a really good uh, run around the new guidelines and where we are at the moment, what we should be thinking about as GPs, and maybe what the future may hold for, you know, more, uh, really uh, more diagnosis in a population level of this um, reversible condition that is such a problem uh, for morbidity and mortality in, in the older age group. So thank you so much, Yassir, for that. Um, and thank you all for listening. We hope you found this uh, podcast helpful. Please make sure to register on the Chronic Conditions website so you can listen to other podcasts in the series and for our interactive webcast brought to you as part of the Chronic Conditions Month in 2022. You can sign up for those at chroniccondition.co.uk. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of Chronic Conditions Month. Mm -hmm.